Well, this session is on This is the End, What the Bible Teaches About Last Things. I did not choose this topic. This topic chose me in the form of God's providence working through my boss, Mark Zakovich. He said, they have asked, who's the they? He never defined it. They have asked that you would talk about everything there is to know about eschatology slowly. I said, really? He said, no, no one asked about the slowly part, but I, I just added that in. And this is what I've been assigned to do, and I understand that because by way of introduction, there are a lot of reasons why people are interested in eschatology. People are interested in eschatology because they're interested in the end. And we are all interested in the end. The end matters. The end matters in a story, in a piece of literature, in a film Sometimes people read the end first because they want to know if it has a good ending. And sometimes people, when they see the ending of a film or they see the ending of a book and it's a terrible ending, what happens? Even if the whole thing is good up to that end point, they will tell people, don't bother reading it. Don't bother looking at it. Don't bother watching it. The ending's terrible. And that's it. And it just kills the entire thing. It reminds me, and I've probably told this illustration more than once, when I was watching a film with my wife, it was an Asian film. It reflects the Asian point of worldview where everything's about everybody dying. So there is no contract like in the United States where the actor can't die. Everyone knows the main characters, they will all die. But this film had a little bit of a more of American bent. It had an American influence. So people were surviving to the last 15 minutes. And so as I'm watching, I'm thinking, this is amazing. I can't believe they lived this long. And my wife is horrified. They're all dying everywhere. The ending matters. And the ending reflects an ideology. And what we need to understand, and one of the reasons why the subject of eschatology is so captivating, is because we have the best ending. We have the best ending. And it's not just the best, as I will say, because of its content. We have the best because it will happen this way. It is real. It is our ending. This is how it will conclude. And so, of course, this invites us in. And not only are people interested in eschatology because the end matters, but because it is so epic. There really are some spectacular moments when Jesus grabs the scroll and no one else is worthy. And all heaven and earth are in awe. There are spectacular judgments, miraculous and supernatural interventions. There are amazing restorations and redemptions. There are dramatic and touching scenes that take place in eschatology. It is truly epic. And so people are invited in. And on top of that, eschatology is mysterious. It's like a puzzle to people and people want to understand it. And so when you start to try to think through it, that invites you in. That's why people also are interested in eschatology. And of course, it is inherently thereby interesting. There are so many passages, so many views, so many details. People kind of get their inner nerd on and they They just like to peruse and think about these things and even debate about these things. And that changes why people are, are from the topic of why people are interested in eschatology to the reasons why people are not interested in eschatology. People don't like the debates. Often 
people, when they discuss eschatology, it's in the context of proving one view right and proving another one wrong. Proving that I am correct about this and you are not correct about this. And that really disturbs people. People wonder, I thought we were supposed to be believers. I thought we were supposed to get along. I thought there was supposed to be the unity of the church. How is this accord with that? And that dissuades people from studying eschatology. Likewise, they feel like eschatology is very confusing. There's so many passages, so many details, so many views. How can I understand all of this? And then they adopt the view not of amillennialism, premillennialism, or postmillennialism. They're just pan-millennialists. They just want it to all pan out. <laughs> and I understand that. And then there are others who approach these things and say, well, I don't think eschatology is that practical. I don't think that it really affects my life. Aren't we going to become too heavenly minded to be of earthly good? Side note very quickly, that statement is completely false according to the scriptures, but that's a different story for a different time. Maybe it'll even coincide with what we're talking about this morning. Nevertheless, people wonder, is it just, I'm just trying to learn a chart. I'm just trying to learn the future and, and I'm just learning a bunch of facts. Is that really meaningful? Does that really change my life right now and make me more like the Lord Jesus Christ, does it help my sanctification? These are the things that people are asking. And so people are some interested in eschatology and some are definitely not. And to both, what I would say is this, we need to do, we need to do eschatology and have it done well. How often is it, and I think people say this to me a lot because I'm a pretty unhealthy eater, they say, well, you would just like vegetables if they were done right. You would just like this specific food if it was done right. You would like to eat healthy if it was done right. And I keep hearing this over and over and over again. And maybe that's true. Maybe these things that are so good for you, if they were done right, would be really yummy. But I'm not entirely sure. But I do know this. With eschatology, when we do it right... It is amazing. It is amazing. Think about this with me. There is a reason why the scriptures do not just lay out a systematic presentation of eschatology that says, step one, this is what God will do. Step two, then this will happen. Step three, then this will happen. Then step four. And there is nothing like that in the scriptures that is so systematic, comprehensive, and extensive. Why is that? Because scripture in dealing with this theological topic, like with all theological topics, it does not just tell you information for the sake of telling you information. Scripture always presents theology with a viewpoint, with a purpose, with a conclusion. That is always what is happening with theology. The scripture doesn't just want you to think about theology any which way. The scripture has a viewpoint, an outlook on it, a perspective on it, and it desires, it demands that we think about it this way. For instance, when we think about the sovereignty of God, people often think, well, if God is sovereign, why evangelize the lost? Except for the fact that the Bible never ever portrays it that way. The Bible never ever says that's the right implication. The Bible never ever describes or has a context which utilizes or implies or applies that doctrine in such a manner. 
Rather, for example, in Acts 18, God says to Paul, you stay in the city and you continue to preach Christ. Why? Because I have many in this city. The sovereignty of God does not dissuade proclamation of evangelism. It actually drives it. It actually drives it. That's how the Bible wants us to think about it. And in the like manner... The Bible's presentation of eschatology is not just to give you truths about the end times, even though that is included. The reason that the Bible includes certain discussions at certain points of time is that God is addressing certain people with certain problems, and he is employing eschatology to address those issues, not only for their lives, but for the life of all believers for all time. You see, the reason God reveals eschatology is not so that we can have debates or just have charts or know about the end times. It is about changing your life now. It is the most practical doctrine in that way. And so when you do eschatology right, the way the Bible presents itself, all of the issues start to dissipate. And that is what I hope to do this morning. My approach is going to be as follows, and I need to make some qualifications here. Will I present every single view on every single thing? No, we don't have enough time. I'm going to try to keep things streamlined and keep things moving. Will I present every single passage? Somebody asked me this, and I just laughed. Do you want me to start reading from Genesis to Revelation? I mean, that's gonna, that will take approximately 72 hours. We don't have that kind of time. So no, I will be missing passages. I know that already. But what I will try to do is present the events along a timeline and explain why they are where they are, not only on the timeline, but why that even matters that God put them where he did, that he planned it the way he did. And along that line, I also want to make sure that as we go through every event, that we remember why God revealed in the original context these doctrines and these details precisely in the first place. And that way we see not only what will happen, but how it's supposed to, how God wanted to shape our lives, and sanctify us through this. Ultimately, what I want to present is a worldview. You might wonder, why does and why did Daniel and others, prophets and apostles, lay out eschatology? It's simple. They wanted you to see the world and history the way God sees it. There are so many times when we understand and we categorize and we identify and we label things in this world based upon how the news sees it, based upon how our history books see it, based upon how the media sees it, based upon how politicians see it. We even categorize eras and epics of history and where things are going based upon their society, the world's ideologies. But what the Bible desires for us to understand is that we need to do so not based on what the world says, not based on what society says, but based on what scripture says. That we say, when we watch the news, we understand this is what is really happening. This is what is truly happening. And we need to learn to define things in our world, not just by what is convenient or immediate to us, but by the way God defined it And by the way, that's the way it truly is, because he is the definer. 
So with that in mind, that is the approach for this time. And what I want to first do, and I know this might be a little bit small to see, but I'll try to narrate it out loud. And hopefully, I believe that we can put this PowerPoint online uh, with any kind of recording so that it'll be accessible to you later on. But the overview of eschatology is that what you have are the last days. That's the span of eschatology. That even includes, as we'll see soon enough, the church age. Then at the conclusion of the church age, and really what is the kickoff to what we often call eschatology, the tribulation period and such, I would contend, as does the doctrinal statement of this church, that the rapture takes place and you have Christ's inauguration as well as the judgment of or the evaluation of the saints in heaven. After and during this, you have the tribulation period, which is seven years divided in two, 3.5 and 3.5, after which Christ returns at the, around the battle of Armageddon, and that commences the thousand-year reign of Christ, also known as the millennial kingdom. After the millennial kingdom, Satan will be released and deceive the nations, but Christ will win, demonstrating that the problem of evil is solved. And having solved that and proven that he has solved it, and he is just and justifier and altogether right, then God commences final judgment at the great white throne, and a new heaven and new earth commence, celebrating the redemption that God has accomplished forever. That's the basic overview. And my job now is to break things down into individual parts and walk us along the timeline in the manner that I just described. So with that, let's talk about first and foremost, the last days. The last days. And that is the overarching period of time, including the church age and beyond. Here's something that we might not realize in talking about the last days. Sometimes, speaking of how we forget the Bible's own perspective and viewpoint, we forget the Bible's perspective on where we are in our lives right now. Right now. And I mean right now as in this very second. What we need to understand is that the last days used consistently throughout Scripture was first prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, it was prophesied, as we will see, as early as the book of Genesis. And what the last days includes and encompasses is the overarching period of the climax and fulfillment of God's plan and his promises. The last days mark the time when everything God is talking about and everything God has intended and everything God has purposed will begin to be fulfilled, worked out, and culminated. And you might say, well, what does everything include? Everything. Let me just show you. Genesis 49, from the beginning, God already knew about this thing called the last days, and he was revealing it, and Israel then knew about it. For instance, in Genesis 49.1, Jacob summoned his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what will befall you in the last days. Genesis 49 is about the way that Israel will be situated in their land in the end times, when God fulfills his promises to them. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 30, the word last days is used to talk about when Israel returns from exile. God said, Israel, you're about to, in the days of Moses, enter the promised land. You're going to do a lot of bad things. God will kick you out of that land. But in the last days, he's going to bring you home. 
And so this is, these last days include Israel's restoration. These last days include Israel's fulfillment. These last days include their return. These last days, according to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, will include the fact that Israel will reign over the entire earth. They will be the center as Christ reigns in Jerusalem over the world. That's part of the last days. In the last days even cover, according to Ezekiel 38, verse 16, the fact that there will be mass Massive judgment that takes place against the countries of the world. He will bring together all the nations to judge Israel and then to be judged. And it's not just generically over other nations. In Jeremiah chapter 48, 47, it talks about this, that individual nations will be affected in the last days. Some people wonder, are you just talking about the future and the future of Israel because you only care about Israel? No, I'm an equal nation kind of guy. There are a lot of destinies of a lot of different nations in the Bible, not just Israel. We'll cover that soon enough. But part of the last days is not just that Israel will be restored. Notice Jeremiah 48, 47. Yet I will return the fortunes of Moab in the last days. It's not just Israel that's going to be restored. It's a place like Moab. And there's a theological reason behind that. And so it includes the judgment of the nations, the restoration of the nations, as much as it also includes the restoration and judgment of Israel. In Daniel chapter 10, all the events of Daniel in their form, and especially the end times of tribulation and time, times, and half a time in the Antichrist and all of that, that's included in the last days. Hosea 3.5 reminds us of this that Israel will return to David, their king, and seek Yahweh, their God. And they will do all of that in the last days, which means that the advent of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, and ultimately Israel's return to him spiritually in repentance, that's included in the last days. So when you're looking at the last days, it's about Israel, it's about the nations, it's about judgment, it's about salvation, it's about spiritual salvation, it's about the Messiah's coming. The last days has all of these climactic things. And here's what the New Testament says. You're in the last days. When did the last days begin? Officially announced Acts chapter 2. Pentecost, the first fruit. As the Spirit is poured out upon believers, Peter, quoting the book of Joel, even modifies the quote to make sure that everyone around him understood and it shall be in the last days. You are in this time. God promised judgment and salvation. God promised a time when there would be the Messiah. And we saw that in the gospels. It happened therein. And so the last days have commenced. We are in the last days. And this is not just some isolated incident in the book of Acts. Notice, you can look at this in 2 Timothy 3 verse 1. But know this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. You have stored up, James 5 says, such treasures in the last days. Why does James even mention the last days? Because we know that the last days have begun. And what do the last days include? Everything that God said he would do climactically and culminatively, including judgment. So you know, if you're in the last days, you are in a collision course with what God does in the end. You are in a collision course with what God does in the end. And the apostles, they knew that. 
They believed that and they wrote accordingly. That's why they keep urging repentance over and over and over again. Because it's the last days. The time's almost up. Things are being fulfilled. You're hitting the climax of the end. You have to address things now. You are running out of time. These are the last days. And there are some important lessons to be learned here. We need to know what period of time we are in. We are not just in a moment of history that is just a moment of history. We are in the last days. If you doubt that eschatology is real, the irony of the whole situation is you are living proof that it is real. Because people in the days of Moses and people in the days of Joel and people in the days of Isaiah, when they were talking about the last days, when they were speaking of that reality and all that that would take place, the New Testament affirmed what they were talking about has already begun. You are the proof that eschatology is real because it's already started to happen. We are in the last days, which tells you then how real prophecy is. When we talk about the last days and what took place, it's not an abstract reality. Jesus really did come. The Holy Spirit really did come. People's lives are really being changed. Salvation and the gospels, they're real things. The church is a real entity proclaiming a real message, and there is real repentance. Prophecy is real. You are experiencing it now. You are receiving the ramifications of it presently, and just as real as it is for you, and as real and as much as we take it for granted. Yeah, of course Jesus came. Of course it was a physical death. Of course he had a physical resurrection. So physical, tangibly real will be the rest of prophecy as well. We need to understand that. And we need to understand the idea of proximity. Now do we know the language when our Lord, our, the prophets, our apostles say, The day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord is near. Your salvation is near. Why? Because we are in the last days. This is on a collision course with what is happening next. There is nothing in the prophetic timeline that blocks us from the end, from the next stage. Therefore, this is us. We are in this, and it is real. This is not theoretical, This is not just abstract. This is not just something that you can put off. It's now. And we are in the collision course to what will take place. We need to live like that. We need to live like that. The reason we call people to repentance is because this is the last moment. This is, in a sense, the last opportunity because these are the last days. And so that's why we know the things to be proclaimed and practiced and why they all matter. Because what you are living and what you are demonstrating and what you are reminding the world as we live our witness is that things that were promised, they're happening. Things that were prophesied, some of them have taken place. And you are announcing to the world because that has begun to happen, everything is starting to come into place and everybody better get their act together because when it all comes into place, you want to be on the right side of things when he returns. So we're in the last days. Theology and the eschatology of theology is not theoretical. 
And as a result of this, that's why the church age is called the church age. Now, having said that, the last days move somewhere. And in the next stage of the last days after the church age is what we call the rapture. This is what concludes the church age as well as inaugurates or really is the kickoff moment of what often in our minds is eschatology. We don't often think of ourselves in eschatology, but we should. But this is what kicks off really the tribulation period. And of course, along with the rapture is the Bema judgment, the judgment seat of Christ as it's alternatively called. Let's talk about that now. What is the rapture? Sometimes people say, I don't believe in the rapture. No, every Christian believes in the rapture. Every single one does, if you are really a Christian. And you say, why? Because the rapture, by definition, by definition, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, the definition of rapture is the resurrection of the saints, the resurrection of believers in the church. That's the definition of the rapture. And so if you don't believe in a rapture, what you're basically saying is, I don't believe we're going to be resurrected. And Paul has something to say about that in 1 Corinthians 15, namely, uh, then why are you a Christian? If you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, if you don't believe you will be resurrected like him, then why bother being a Christian? Why bother being at risk at every hour? That makes no sense. And so everyone believes in a rapture because everyone believes in the resurrection. Every Christian, that is. Now, you might ask, okay, I believe in a rapture. That's fine. But how do we know when it is? You've argued, and we've presented here, that it ends the church age and initiates the time of the tribulation and such. It's a pre-tribulational rapture. How do we know that? Well, let me walk through this quickly with you all. For one, we know when the rapture is not. We know when the rapture is not. It is not at the second coming of Christ. It is not at the second coming of Christ. You say, how can we be so sure that that is the case? Because the who, what, when, where, why, and how of the rapture does not match the who, what, when, where, why, and how of the second coming. Take this as a simple example. If you walk from the Old Testament, even into the Gospels, the way and what happens when Christ returns, he comes down and the elect, the nation of Israel is gathered. In fact, we even alluded to that earlier in talking about what happens in the last days. But when the saints, when Israel is gathered back together from the four corners of the world, so to speak, the Old Testament and even the Gospels are absolutely consistent in how that will take place. It says this, that they will walk back, that they will be carried back. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, it says this, that people will put Israelites on their shoulders and transport them back to the nation of Israel. It's what we call a very horizontal gathering. Why? Because they're all on the ground. They're all walking. They're all moving. There is nothing about, and then they will fly or they will jump really high and bounce into the promised land. There is no talk about that whatsoever. It is a massive regathering that happens as people move from one corner of the earth as they normally do on the ground. That's what takes place. Even in the New Testament, in the Gospels, our Lord in Matthew 24 talks about the regathering of the nation of Israel, and he does so with the standard terminology that suggests 
It's all on the ground. So everything, every single thing has been on the ground, on the ground, on the ground, on the ground, from the ground, along the ground, on the ground. And then what does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 4? As he introduces new revelation, because he says this is by word of the Lord, what does he say? We will meet Christ in the air. Now that's why it has to be new revelation. Because everyone has been thinking we will meet Christ on the ground. That's what happens. But Paul says, surprise, not the ground. In the what? Air. And all of a sudden, everyone is scratching their heads thinking, well, this is new. And that's why Paul says, yes, that's why I said it's by word of the Lord. The second coming cannot be the same events as the rapture because they happen in two different locations, in two different ways, in two different manners. It's totally different. Now, you might say, okay, All you've told us so far is when the rapture doesn't happen, but you haven't told us when it does. True. It's not the second coming. So when does it occur? Could occur three minutes before the second coming. It could occur 10 minutes, one hour, two hours, three months, three and a half years, seven years. When does it actually occur? And that is where the scriptures help us to understand this. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, he talks about the rapture. We understand that. But what is absolutely fascinating is as you get into 1 Thessalonians 5, the first words that are said are these. Now concerning the times and the seasons. In context, what has Paul been talking about? The rapture. So what are the times and seasons concerning? The rapture. And what does he say? Now concerning the times and the seasons, we have no need to tell you that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What has Paul just done? He has said the times and the seasons of the rapture are the same thing as the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. What does that mean? The parallel shows that the day of the Lord coming is paralleled with the time of the rapture. When the day of the Lord comes, the what? The rapture comes. When one starts, the other one happens. That's the idea. And at that moment, you have a pre-tribulational rapture. Because one starts, the other one starts. Likewise, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul affirms this. He talks about our gathering with Christ. And in that context, he says, Let no one disturb you as if the day of the Lord has already begun. What has he just said? I'm talking to you about the rapture. And let no one convince you that the day of the Lord has already begun. Begun. When one begins, the other one begins. They are parallel. They are parallel. Already you begin to see that the Bible has distinguished the Lord's second coming from the rapture and has anchored the rapture to being more parallel with the initiation of the day of the Lord. Along that line, and what further confirms this, are passages like Revelation chapter 3. You will be taken and kept out of the tribulation. That affirms this as well. Or how about this? In the book of Revelation, does John, the apostle, know how to talk about the church? Does he know the word church? Absolutely. What does Revelation 2 and 3 talk about? The church, the seven churches, to the church of Ephesus, to the church of Laodicea, etc. So isn't it fascinating that from Revelation 4 all the way through Revelation 18, the church is never mentioned. It's never mentioned. 
The only time you then see the bride of Christ is in Revelation 19, in heaven. And they are getting themselves ready. Here's the question. How'd they get there? Jesus is about to come back at the second coming. He hasn't broken through heaven yet. How'd the church get there? And the answer is because of the rapture. Because of the rapture. Likewise, here's another way to think about it. In 1 Thessalonians 3, it says this, that when Jesus returns, he will return with his saints, with all of his saints. Paul is very strict in the way that he uses the word saints. Saints restrictively means in Pauline literature that it is about the believers in the church. So how in the world do believers in the church return with Christ if they were never in heaven to begin with? That's a question. But Paul answers that in 1 Thessalonians 3 with 1 Thessalonians 4. Because he says, of course, you'll be in heaven. Because the dead in Christ shall raise up what? First, and we will all be caught up with God in the air. And so, of course, we're going to be with him when he returns because of the rapture. All of this reminds us that there is exegetical basis. And for what is taking place, that indeed the church is with God in heaven before the tribulation starts. In fact, the rapture is what kicks it off. And if you think, well, that's kind of weird. Why would God do that? God has always done dramatic things like that to kick off his new eras. Think about this. You have Enoch. He walked with God, and then what? He was not, for God what? Took him right before the flood. There's an inauguration that takes place, a kickoff moment of a new era. You have this, these kind of dramatic actions of God to start and begin every epoch of his plan. So to start eschatology, as we would call it, to start the tribulation period, it is without surprise that God acts this way. It may seem bizarre to you and me, but if we understand how God has always been doing things, it's perfectly normal. It's perfectly normal. It's expected. Now, having said this, why does the rapture matter? Okay, we've seen that it's about the resurrection. That's one reason why it matters. We've also seen when it takes place. Is this just about, though, escapism? That's how often people think about it. Well, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that. I got the rapture. Is that how the, that may be true in our minds. Is that how the Bible wants us to look at it? I would actually suggest to you it's the opposite. Let me prove it to you. Obviously, fundamentally, when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, it's the hope of the resurrection. That's why we love the rapture. That's why we look forward to it. It reminds us that our work is not in vain. As opposed to being disinterested, as opposed to being disconnected, as opposed to being escapists, the rapture reminds us, no, you should work all the harder because God will come back and reward you. God will take you home and he will hold you accountable. Your work means something. It's not in vain, and you're accountable to it. Speaking of which, and we'll get back to this in a second, in 1 Thessalonians 4, one of the reasons Paul wanted to talk about the rapture is to give encouragement to people that they would not miss out on all the blessings and reward that God had for them. All the blessings and reward that God would have for them. More on that in a second. In 2 Thessalonians 2, it's about perspective and suffering. This is important. You see, what the Thessalonians in the historical background were going through is they were going through intense persecution. And they had thought, maybe now we're in the day of the Lord. That's how bad it is. 
and they were dramatizing their suffering. And so Paul has to go in and say, uh, excuse me, Thessalonians, if you're really in the day of the Lord, step one of day of the Lord is there would be a great apostasy. Everyone would turn away from God. Have you done that? No, then you're not in the day of the Lord. Step two of day of the Lord would be that the Antichrist would be revealed. Have you met the Antichrist yet? No. Is he sitting in the temple? No. Is he the, has the abomination of desolation taken place? No. Then you are not in the day of Yahweh. Relax. But he reminds them of this very important truth. You as believers will never see the worst suffering. You as believers will never see the worst suffering. So don't act like you are. You will never, you will never, in the mercy of God, is it because we deserve it? No. You will never, you will never, by his kindness, see the worst kind of suffering. So as you go through things, don't treat it as if you're in the tribulation. Don't treat it as if God has abandoned you. Don't treat it as if God has not given you his grace. What 2 Thessalonians 2 says is right now, actually God's grace is in operation because there is the restrainer who what? Restrains. You will never, you will never know the worst of it. So don't act like you are. It reminds us to embrace our suffering. It reminds us we're not looking for an escape from the bad things of this world. We're looking to deal with them and to be bold in them and to be faithful in them. Why? Because we know we will never face the worst of it because of the kindness of God. That's practical. That's practical. What you tell yourself when you go through hard times is that this will never be the worst of it. God is gracious. He is faithful. I will persevere on. And speaking of perseverance in Revelation 3, why is the church of Philadelphia kept out? And why is that promise made? Because they kept my word. So I will keep them out. You want to be the faithful ones? You want to be those who are part of the church? You want to be those who will participate in the rapture? When you are converted, we know we are converted unto good works. Keep God's word and he'll keep you out. That's the reward and blessing of faithfulness. The rapture is not escapism. Even though it will provide a way of escape, the rapture is what drives us to further perseverance. And along that line then, why does God schedule the rapture the way he does? Just to get us out and to be nice to us? No, there's a real reason behind it, and it's this. And in fact, the book of Revelation already explains it to us within the flow of it. Do you remember me saying in, Re- in Revelation 1 through 3, we talk about the church. In Revelation 19, we talk about the church. But in Revelation 4 through 18, we don't have any mention of the church. We have the mention, though, say, of the 144,000 of Israel. We have a lot of talk about the nations. We have a lot about talk about the world. Why? Because God has made very important promises and set his plan in very important ways to accomplish things for the nation of Israel. But if we're around as the church, then his eye is on us and his focus of his plan is on us as the church. So to switch gears from the church to Israel, what does God do? He removes the church so that he can focus on Israel. It just works out perfect. Everything works together. It fits together like a nice puzzle. And of course it would because God planned it that way. That's why the rapture occurs before the tribulation 
period, so that Israel will get all that God has intended for it, even while the church will get all that's intended for it. And let's talk about that now. And it ties back, like I said, a little bit to 1 Thessalonians 4, the Bema seat and the day of Christ. What happens when we get into heaven? Are we just going to be lounging around? No. One, I would argue that we'll see the inauguration of Christ in Revelation 4 and 5. That will be spectacular. That's worth the price of admission. But even more than that, what happens is that we will be evaluated. 2 Corinthians 5 says we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the word bema in uh, Greek. And this word judgment seat is repeated throughout the New Testament to talk about a time when we are evaluated. Now, let me be absolutely clear, and I'm going to say this twice, I think, just to make sure that it's clear in everybody's mind. This is not about whether you are saved or not, or being judged or not. Let me say that again. This is not about whether you are being, whether you are saved or not, or being judged or not. That is not what is taking place at the Bema seat, because you're already saved if you're there. The reason you're raptured is why? Because you're part of the church. Why? Because you trusted in Christ. Why? Because he converted you. Why? Because he chose you. Why? We don't know why, but that's why all these things happen. And so you are there. Your salvation is not in question. If it was, you wouldn't be there. It's not like Jesus said, oh, pick one one too many. No, that's not how it's going to work. And so you're there because you are saved. And what the Bema did, even in the ancient times, was to evaluate the one who ran the race and give them the reward. Give them the reward. What they are due. This is a time of reward. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we will be rewarded whether we did good or or bad, what was helpful or harmful is the idea. That's the notion of the Bema. And you say, well, why are we getting rewards? And people get into this really weird system where they think, well, should I do things for the reward or should I not do things for the reward, even though I'll get a reward? And look, if you do things just to get a reward, you won't be rewarded because you have the wrong motive. That's wicked. You're worshiping the gift rather than the giver, especially when you understand what the gift is for. And this is where everything should come together. Revelation 19, talking about the church, preparing for Christ's return as they go with him as he returns from heaven. It says this, they will be dressed in white linen and beautiful ornaments. And it says this, those things are the righteous deeds of the saints. Just like a bride should look beautiful on her wedding day in an immaculate wedding dress. The church will be dressed for Christ, adorned for him, to honor him. Where did they receive those adornments? At the Bema. Why does God give us rewards? It's not just so that we have some bling in eternity. It's this, that we say, This is for you, Christ. This is so that when you return to earth and there's the marriage supper of the lamb, that we give him the honor that he is due. That's why there are rewards in heaven. The rewards are not for you. 
there for his son. That's what's going on there. And now you can understand, maybe in part, and maybe we need to work on our heart a little bit to understand why the Thessalonians were so distressed about people who had died. They were worried that those people would miss out on the Bema, that they would miss out on receiving reward, and therefore they would miss out on giving Christ, the one who died for them and lived for them and bought their life back for them and ultimately for himself, the glory. And what does Paul say? No one in the church is what? Missing out. The dead in Christ shall rise up what? First, we'll meet him in the air. We'll be with him forever. We'll receive those rewards and we will give them to him. No one misses out on the reward. That's the mercy of the rapture to us. And if you say, I don't totally get it. Well, the first step to really get this is to ask yourself how much you love Christ and how much you want him honored. And if you do, then this concern makes total sense. You don't want to miss out on anything that would give Jesus glory. And here's God's mercy to us. You won't. You won't. That's the beauty of the Bama Seat. And in fact, the Bama Seat is also called this interesting title, and it just demonstrates the mercy and the kindness of God to us. It is called the Day of Christ. For example, I think a familiar verse to us is, he who began a good work in you will finish it unto the day of Christ. That's the day when you appear before him, when he evaluates you and he says, I did finish the work in you. Here's your reward. I did this in you. Here you go. And when you receive it, ultimately you say, no, here you go. I'm giving it back to you. The day of Christ. This is not just found in Philippians chapter 1. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There's a lot of different passages that discuss the day of Christ, the day of Christ, the day of Christ. Notice the church in these Pauline epistles, they are unto the day of Christ. The one who began will come into the day of Christ. He will be, fade, he will be found blameless on the day of Christ. We will have much rejoicing on the day of Christ. Day of Christ over and over and over again. Notice what is not said of the church. You will be found on the day of the Lord. And already you begin to see a bifurcation. The world will go through the day of the Lord, but the church will have the day of Christ. Two different things, two different destinies. Two different events, which implies, again, not only that the rapture is completely separated from the tribulation period, but even more, it's a reminder of us. We do have accountability, but it's not an onerous accountability. It's a hopeful accountability. It's one where we want to please Christ and give all the maximum beauty, honor, ornateness, and glory to him. And that is part of eschatology. That's what kicks off eschatology. Well, that, as the book of Corinthians reminds us, is a blink of an eye. So we spent 28 minutes on a blink of an eye. Now we got to go through 1,007 years. So let's talk about the beginning of all this, Christ's inauguration. Christ's inauguration. When you enter into heaven, in the rapture, I would contend based on some things that 
what we'll see is exactly what John saw. In fact, have you noticed that the prophets and what they experience in their visions, it's actually what happens to their audience, those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who know God truly. For example, Isaiah, he's in a vision, and what happens? An angel puts a coal on his mouth and says, your sins have been atoned for. What will happen to those who believe Isaiah's message? Their sins will be what? atoned for. In Ezekiel's vision, he sees a wheel within a wheel and a spectacular glory of God. He falls on his face and the spirit enters in him. What happens to those who believe his message and understand that? This Holy Spirit will be in them, Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. And so in the same way, John has a vision and he goes into heaven. Those who hear him in the church, they will also be in heaven to see the moment of Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and it is a glorious moment. If the, if the rapture happens at the same time as the initiation of the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, the heavenly inauguration of Christ is where it is all kicked off. It is where it's all initiated and implemented. And this really is a massive moment, and it's not just found in Revelation 4 and 5. It is found throughout the scriptures. We just talked about the visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel. Think about this. <clears throat> Isaiah saw one sitting on the throne, yes? What did John see in Revelation 4? One sitting on the throne. What did Isaiah hear the angels saying? Holy, holy, holy. What does John in Revelation 4 hear the angels saying? Holy, holy, holy. Coincidence? I don't think so. Likewise, Ezekiel, he says, I saw one sitting on a throne with wheels, with chariot wheels, And he was holy, and there were cherubim around him. What does John say in Revelation 4? I saw one in heaven seated on a throne, and there were what around him? Cherubim. Cherubim. That had four faces, just like the four faces of the angels in Ezekiel's vision. And then Daniel, he says, I saw one seated on the throne, the ancient of days, seated on the throne. And you know what's fascinating in Daniel chapter 7 when he says this? He says, and the throne had wheels of fire. Just like Ezekiel's vision. What is Daniel saying? I saw what Isaiah saw, and I saw what Ezekiel saw. And what is John saying? I saw what Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel saw. They all saw the same thing. They all saw the moment when Jesus would take the throne, would take the scroll. That's what they all saw. Because this moment is so intense. This moment is so perfect that it took all these prophets and all these apostles to see every angle of it the way it should be seen. And this really is a perfect moment. You say, why do all these different guys have to comment on it? Why did God organize it that way so you knew it all happened? Just like a party or a celebration or a wedding or any kind of commemoration, every detail must be perfect. Don't you think for God's son, he would make every single detail perfect? And it is. Why does Isaiah see what he sees and why does John recapitulate? It's simple because this is the moment, like Isaiah's name means, that salvation will be accomplished. Why does John see the same thing as Ezekiel? Because Ezekiel helps everyone to understand this is the moment that the relationship with God and God's presence amongst the world and his glory filling the earth the way it should always be filled from the inside out, this is the moment it's going to happen. Why see it like Daniel sees it? Because Daniel's helping us to understand this moment isn't just about salvation. This moment isn't just about the presence of God. This moment is about when the king 
king of kings, the last Adam takes over the whole world and gets exactly what he inherited from the very beginning. This is that moment. And so this is the moment that we've all been waiting for. This is the moment of the fulfillment of history. This is the moment of the fulfillment of theology. This is the moment of the fulfillment of God's promises. And here's God's question. In light of this being that moment, Revelation 5, who can open the scroll? Who can, the, who can do all of that and why? And there is no one in heaven. And the only sound you hear at that moment is John crying. Because there's no one. And he knows no one has the right to do that except the Lord Jesus Christ. And he takes the scroll and he is the only one who is worthy. What is eschatology all about? It's not just about spectacular things. It's about who? It's about Christ. It's about the honor of Christ. Sometimes people say, what, you know, if you miss a theology of sin, that has these devastating effects. And so what's at stake is, is the gospel, ultimately. And people ask, well, and if you t- even talk about creation and, and the creation of man and woman and, and the issues of Genesis 1 through 3 and Genesis 1 through 11, there are many things that are disrupted in theology. That's what is at stake if you deny that doctrine. And people wonder, what's at stake if you deny eschatology? What's at stake if you ignore it? The honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will get everything God promised. And there is no promise, as much as we might think it's insignificant, that he doesn't deserve. And so why study eschatology? What is eschatology all about? It's not just about spectacular things, even though that's included. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and his honor. And for that very reason, it's not just the moment that Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, or John, or the church, or we are waiting for. It's the moment God has been waiting for to show off his son. I love this. When Jesus takes the scroll, what does heaven begin to do? They sing a new song. We know that. They sing a new song. Think about this. From the moment that the angels were created, from the moment that they were made, they have been saying one thing, waiting for the moment to say the other thing. And that is how great Christ is. God has designed all of heaven to wait for this moment. This is the moment the father has been waiting for, for his son, to give his son what is due. That is the starting point of eschatological activity, and Christ is the starting point of eschatology. He gets the scroll, and now he will initiate everything to make all history, all theology, all promise actuality. And this begins the tribulation period, the tribulation period, which is a seven-year period right after Christ kicks everything off. The tribulation period is also known as the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. It's also known as the time of Jacob's trouble. Why is it called these things? Because even though we focus on all the troubles that are in the time of the day of Yahweh, the tribulation, God focuses on this, that he reveals himself in a unique way. That's why it's called the day of Yahweh. It's not just called the day of trouble. It's called the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. He will manifest himself both in judgment and in salvation, but there will be tremendous difficulty at this time. That's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble, not just Israel's trouble, Jacob's trouble. It's been trouble ever since they got into trouble, as in the time of Jacob. So that's what's going on there. Now, you might say, how in the world 
Do you know that the tribulation period is seven years? Are you really, really sure it's seven years? That's a great question. And here's some reasons why we know it is seven years. Daniel gives a prophecy, a prophecy of weeks, which is a period of seven. And in these prophecy of weeks, he describes seven sets of seven years, seven periods of seven years of time. Those are also known as weeks in the text, in, often in translation. And with that, Daniel says this, that he's reserved one week for this period of time of Jacob's trouble, of the ultimate culmination of everything. One week. Well, how long is a week in days? How many days are in a week? Seven. So this is equivalent to seven years. Seven years. And you say, but how do we really, are you really, really, really sure? Yes, let's keep talking about this. You see, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, he comments on this whole week's business. And he says, I want to let you know that it's, there's going to be trouble for time, times, and half a time. We're going to do some math together now. It's going to be fun. So time is one, times is two, and half a time is half. Okay. So one plus two is three. Okay, we got to prove that we can do better than Grace Academy kids, okay? Three, three plus a half is three and a half. And that's a half of seven. Okay, now you say, but how do we really know that it's going to be this many years, this many times, and all this kind of stuff? Well, Daniel sets that up. He expects us to understand And even this understanding is held consistently all the way through the New Testament. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 2, it says this, that the latter half of this period will be 42 months. 42 months. Now, let's just put on our thinking cap a little bit. A month has how A year has how many months? 12. 12 times 3 is what? 36. Half a year has how many months? 6. 6 plus 36 is what? 42. Three and a half years just like the Old Testament said. And in fact, if you're like, well, are you really, really, really sure? Then John says, next verse, it'll be 1,260 days. You say, oh, no. (laughs) In the prophetic calendar, a year is 360 days. Three and a half years times 360, just guess, is 1,260. So what you have is exactly this in multiple units, all to show you when we mean seven years, we mean seven years. We mean the combination of 3.5 plus 3.5, which is seven. We mean the combination of 42 months, which is seven years. We mean 1,260 days on the prophetic calendar, which is what? Seven years. Seven years, simply put, is seven years. Now you might say, well, you just did all that just to tell us it's seven years. Does it really matter if it's seven years? Why does it matter? No, it does matter. Could God have made it two years? Yeah. Could he have made it seven seconds? Of course he could have. Could he have made it any other period of time he wanted to? Yeah, he's God. So he had a reason for why it's seven. It's a complete period of time. The number seven denotes completion. It's a complete period of time of God's judgment. And not only that, it completes God's plan. It completes God's plan. That's why it's seven years. And in fact, it goes back to this, and this will be very important, Where was the original seven period of time in Genesis chapter one? The first what? Week. This is the last week, so to speak. It's a period of seven. 
God made creation in a period of seven, and he will decreate and recreate in a period of what? Seven. It's absolute symmetry. God doesn't do anything by accident. His plan is perfect. Like we said, it's divided into two 3.5-year segments. The great and awesome day of Yahweh is usually called the last of the two 3.5-year segments. And let's just walk through very quickly this period of time. This in the first half, particularly, of the seven years, the first 3.5 years will be what we call a time of warning. This will be a terrible time, not as terrible as the last half, but still a terrible time, and it's a period of warning. The Antichrist will appear. Revelation 6 makes that clear. He appears. He appears as a, a person on a white horse. You say, wait, I thought the white horse guy riding it was Gandalf. No, no, no. It, I thought the guy riding the white horse is Christ. What do you mean he's the Antichrist? That's deceptive. That's the point. In fact, Zechariah 11 already should have prompted us and prepared us to know that there will be a deception. This guy is a counterfeit because in Zechariah 11, it says this, you will betray the right Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. Did that happen? Yes. And then he says this, Zechariah, acting out this play and this role play, put on the instruments of a false and foolish shepherd. You have a good shepherd and you have a what? Foolish shepherd. They're both what? Shepherds. And so you know there's going to be a deception that will occur, a nefarious deception. And that's why the Antichrist appears first. That's what even 2 Thessalonians 2 reminds us, one of the first things that happened on the day of the Lord. And we know he's an imitation. We know he's a deceiver. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, 27, it says this, he will make a covenant with Israel for three and a half years. Three and a half years, the first three and a half So we know he's a deceiver. And if you didn't know he was a deceiver on top of all this, just think about this. Revelation 6, the guy comes out riding a white horse with a bow, but no arrows. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not a military guy, but I understand that's not reasonable. You know, it's like, look, I got a bow. You have nothing to shoot me with. You're still dead unless you're a great deceiver. And you unite people not based on military might, but on what? politics and influence and threat. That's what this Antichrist does. He tries to unite the whole world behind him and he will unite Israel. And that actually could be facilitated by the following kind of events that you see in Revelation 6, where there is a red horse that rides out and then there is no peace, but there's war. There's a black horse that rides out, which is famine. There's a pale horse that rides out and there's death. A fourth of all the world will die. It's easy in a crisis to unite everybody around one man, isn't it? We've even seen a glimpse of that. And frankly, this isn't just found in Revelation chapter 6 as if it's a one-off. In Matthew 24, it says this, Jesus warned his disciples, he says, beware of false Christs. Hmm, that sounds kind of similar. Before, beware of wars and rumors of wars. Beware of famine. What? We were just talking about this. Beware because people will die. Well, what is Jesus saying? The exact same thing as Revelation chapter 6 in Matthew 24. That's what he's talking about. And he will talk about at this time that there will be massive religious apostasy and moral apostasy. And there will be no restraint on all of it. But you say, why is this all happening at these times? It is as Jesus is opening seal after seal of the scroll that he possesses. This is all about his sovereignty. He is over it all. He is over the food you eat. He is over peace and war. He is over your life and death. 
And he is over every political and military operation in this world. He is the one instigating. He is the one implementing. He is the one sovereign over it all. That's Revelation's emphasis. And he's even over Israel. That's Jesus' emphasis in Matthew 24. Now, what happens as Jesus opens and shows his dominion as judgment goes forth in all of these situations, the seven seals cascade into the seven trumpet judgments of Revelation. Just remember that for a little bit. But what do these trumpet judgments do? You know, it gets all confusing, just so much judgment. But there's a rhyme and reason for everything. Let me talk about them. A third of the grass will die, that's one. A third of the sea and a third of the rivers, they become blood and bitter. And then you lose the sun, moon, and stars, a third of them. Have you noticed they're all a thirds, okay? That's pretty easy to remember. And if you say, that's still hard to remember. Well, think about how God created the world. He created the sun, moon, and stars. He created the sky and the sea. And then he created the dry land, did he not? What you have here is the dry land's destroyed. The sky and the sea are destroyed. And then the light is what? Destroyed. God is just working backwards through the days of creation. Everything he created, he's uncreating them. He's decreating them. This essentially is HGTV Globe Edition. Tear it down. Get rid of the whole thing. Yeah, that's what God is doing. He's tearing down the world to make it right for his son. That's what he's doing in this moment. And of course, people will be attacked at the end of this because they're on the sixth day. And so he saves, in a sense, the best for last. And, and there will be massive death and slaughter then too. And there's a reason for all of these tragedies and all of this miraculous judgment. It's even found in the word trumpet. What does a trumpet do? When you blow a trumpet, you're given a warning. You're given an announcement. And God is announcing his agenda. I am judging the world. I am tearing it down to rebuild it around my son. You all better repent. That is the announcement of the trumpet. And so it is a terrible time, but there's a purpose in this time. The purpose, as we said here, it's to warn. It's to warn the whole world, to alert them. And in fact, we know that that's going to take place because at this time, Revelation 7, in the midst of all this, says what? 144,000 of Israel will be what? Sealed. They will witness. Will their witness be effective? Yes, because in the, na- in the next part of that same chapter, there is a great multitude that is in heaven. They did not bend their knee. There is an effective witness in this world this time. They're warning. In fact, their warning is so effective. Matthew 24, 14 says this, and the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. That's how effective this time will be. There will be a warning. God sets everything in heaven and earth to declare his son and to declare the warning of judgment in the gospel. Nevertheless, Revelation 9, 20 and 21 say this, no one repented. No one repented at all. They were warned. That's true, but that doesn't mean they're repenting and they didn't. Lots of lessons to be learned here about the awesome nature of what God does, God's vengeance for his people as he judges, even evangelism. Here are people in the end times in cataclysmic judgment, and they're still proclaiming the what? The gospel, even to the ends of the earth. That should be a convicting call for us in the midst of our own challenges to do the same thing. But ultimately, this is all about Christ. He wins. He is winning. He is sovereign over it all. And that moves from the first part of the 3.5 years 
to the second part of the 3.5 years. Here's, though, when things get really, really bad. In fact, Jeremiah 30 says, it is the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a terrible time when after having received all the conglomeration of the world and united the whole world, even Israel together, now the, well, now the false Antichrist, the Antichrist himself, shows his true colors and will establish intense persecution of Israel and all the people of God. In fact, in Zechariah 11, it describes the false shepherd this way. He will consume the sheep and even tear off their hooves. Okay, it's one thing to eat an animal. It's another thing to rip off their hooves. Why would you do that unless you were insane? And that's what this guy is. He's insane. He will destroy everything. And the kickoff to just demonstrate his diabolical nature is the abomination of desolation. Daniel talks about this. He even hints at what the abomination of desolation is in Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig in the temple. That's a problem for a lot of reasons. Okay? One, you have a Gentile sacrificing. That's bad. Two, he's sacrificing in the temple itself, which is bad. Third, he's sacrificing a pig which is no matter how you slice and dice the thing, it's still unclean. It's bad. Everything is bad. What could be worse if the Antichrist goes into the temple that he rebuilds and says, I'm God? That is worse than a pig on an altar. And that's what will take place. Second Thessalonians 2 says this. Matthew 24 says this. He will set himself up in the temple. There will be an unholy trinity at this time. In Revelation 13, it talks about the dragon, which is Satan, the Antichrist, which is a beast, and another beast, which is the false prophet, acting like the spirit. And the spirit, false spirit, shall we say, drives people to the false Christ, that's the Antichrist, to worship Satan, who is the false god. That's what's going to be taking place at this time. It'll be a time of terrible tribulation. In fact, here's what's so shocking. Daniel 7 says this, that, that the Antichrist will be warring against the sins, the saints rather, he will be warring against the saints. And it says this, he will prevail. He'll win for a period of time. That's how bad it will be. It'll be so bad, Matthew 24 says this, that if God did not darken the days and shorten the days, people wouldn't survive. That's how bad it will be. And just to illustrate the point of that spear, we know this. If you don't surrender to the false religion of this time, if you do not surrender your political alliance to the Antichrist and bear either on your forehead or on your hand the number what? 666, 666 to be clear, then you can neither buy nor sell. Now, let me just talk about this really quickly for a second. Why 666? By the way, in Greek and in the original language, it says not just six and six and six, it's the number 666. So just to make sure that that's understood in our minds. But why even talk about this? Well, go to the scriptures itself. That's the simple way to do it. Solomon had 666 chariots. Nebuchadnezzar's statue, remember the gold one that he wanted people to worship? Its dimensions equal 666. Now do you understand what we mean by the number of a man? This is the number that shows off who you are. This is the number that shows off your power. 
This is the number that you use to rival God because Nebuchadnezzar made a statue of gold to counteract the dream that he had in the previous chapter where God says, well, there's going to be a statue and part of it's gold, part of it's silver, part of it's bronze, part of it's iron. And then there's going to be a stone not made with hands that's going to strike the whole thing. And that's the guy who wins. And Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue all of gold. And he says, that's not what's going to happen. I'm the guy. I'm all gold. That's what he's arguing. This is that kind of defiance. 666 is the number of man's power. And you're going to have to put that on your hand or your head and if you want to buy or eat anything. Now, on one hand here, let me just caveat this. People say, is that the vaccine? No, no. (laughs) But it's a lesson. If it doesn't match perfectly, it's not a match. 666 is not a vaccine. 666, you don't buy or sell. That's not true either completely. To match, it's got to be a complete what? Match. That's how precise prophecy is. That's how it's always been. That's the standard, and we got to live by it. But on the other hand, here's something instructive, and it's about worldview. People years ago said, I I don't believe that. That could ever happen. That could never be a possibility, what is described in the book of Revelation. How could you stop people from buying and selling? You got cash. You got gold. You got canned food that you could trade and barter with people. You could do anything. But now we learn that there are mechanisms being put in place where that's not impossible to think about. It's not the way it's going to happen, but it could provide a way it could happen in the future. And we need to remember that. This is not the fulfillment of prophecy, but rather we understand prophecy will be fulfilled in the future. And we need to look at the world properly. But here's to the point of the text. If you can't buy or sell anything, if you can't get food, you're going to what? You're going to die. Evil is real at this time. So real, so devastating. But here's what the Bible wants you to remember. It's not just the reality of evil. It's the resilience of Christ. I love this. You see, in Daniel, it says that the Antichrist will be crushed. Second Thessalonians 2, yes, the Antichrist will come. But do you know what Paul first says about the Antichrist? The first words out of his mouth are this, the one whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the word of his mouth. The first thing you know about the Antichrist is what? He's defeated by Christ. That's the perspective we need to have. Yes, there is the reality of evil, but there is the resilience of Christ. And what I love above all of these things is the book of Revelation. When you think that's such intense persecution, it's worldwide, you're going to live or you're going to die. How could anyone last within this? Revelation 14 says, and then I saw the saints in his Jerusalem singing the praise of God and they were not stained by the sins of this world, and they did not capitulate to the Antichrist. What does it show you? When God wants to keep you, he will what? He will hold you fast. And why did the book of Revelation, why under inspiration did John reveal this to the churches of this time? Because what he was reminding them is, if God can hold his saints in the end, if he will do that in the future, and he will hold them so fast that against truly impossible odds, they will still persevere, then what do you think he can do for you now? He will hold you fast. And there are no odds that are so impossible that he cannot overcome. That's why we study eschatology, because we know this will happen, so it reflects the God who is working at this precise moment. 
Yes, reality of evil is true, but the resilience of Christ is there. And with that, God will start to unleash judgment, judgment, more judgment upon judgment. We had the seven seals that cascaded into the seven trumpets, and those seven trumpets will cascade into seven bowls. You say, why bowls? Because there are bowls in the temple which collect the blood of the sacrifices which show that God's wrath will be satisfied. This is about the satisfaction of God's wrath against the wickedness that is being pervaded at this time. And so there's going to be sores that are going to be hitting the earth. There's going to be, it says this, that the sea will turn into blood. What does that remind you of? Ten plagues, God says, I'm freeing my people. The rivers will turn into blood, which reminds you of the same thing. And it's not just that it is reminding you of the deliverance of God's people. God says this, this is for what you did to my people and spilling their blood into my rivers. You don't think, you know, sometimes when we read Book of Martyrs, when we read um, the voice of the martyrs, the modern day uh, recounting of persecution of the saints, we get upset. Our heart breaks for the fellow saints undergoing these things. Know this. Why do you study eschatology? Know this. God will have his day. And he says, I know every saint you killed. I know every saint you persecuted. I know every affliction you all have done, and I will have my vengeance. That is why this is so intense at this time. And the last part about it is that he kills off Babylon, the city, it's brought down. And then you meet the whore of Babylon and the city of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. And it's not just there. You can find it in Isaiah 13. You can find it in Jeremiah chapter 50. It's all over the place. Why though? Why is it being talked about? You need to understand that the word Babylon is the same word as Babel, as in the tower of Babel. What man tried to do against God in building that tall tower that he had to come down and have a look because it was so itty-bitty is they, that animus, worldwide animus, will be fulfilled one day in Babylon. See, Babylon's always been against God as a corporate entity. You had Tower of Babel. Who was the ones that deported Israel, Southern Kingdom particularly? Babylon. Even in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, Peter says, those from Babylon greet you. It's always been about Babylon. Babylon has been the wicked place, the epicenter of wicked activity. And they will one day take all commerce and all religion and all politics and all philosophy, and they will consolidate it all, but God will bring it down. And people will be mourning over Babylon. And you say, what's the application of Revelation 17 and 18? Do we mourn Babylon? No, no, you don't mourn Babylon. I'm not going to mourn Babylon at all. I'm going to rejoice. And that's the instructions. But the reason that people are mourning Babylon is because it's gone. And when people mourned cities back in those days, here's what they were realizing. That city, it represented a way of life. It represented the way things were and the way things are. And when it comes down, everything will what? Change. The closest illustration I can have in the modern times is when the towers fell. Everyone knew everything's going to be different. Babylon falls, everything's going to be different. But that's a good thing, isn't it? 
when finally, you see, the world, you say, everything works wrong. Even you tell kids, that's not fair. The world's not fair. That's what we keep telling them over and over. Things don't work out well for the righteous in this world all the time. In this lifetime, things don't always have and fall according to justice. We know that things aren't always good at every single moment. Things, this is not a perfect world. We know that and it affects everything. We understand that. But the only solution is the gospel and the Christ of the gospel who brings down everything so that a new era will begin. And that leads us in the destruction of Babylon. Everyone knows there's a new era coming. What's the era? The return of Christ. He's the one who brings it. And let's talk about that now. Christ returns. I love this. You want to talk about a new era? Yeah, there's going to be one last ditch effort against God. They're going to gather in the plains of Armageddon to war against him. They, they know that they're defeated, but they want one last ditch stand against God. So they gather in this place, but God will fight against them. And why does God set this whole thing up? There's a lot of beautiful reasons. Here's one of them. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38 and 38, 38 and 39, Gog and Magog. You know what God says to Israel? You probably wonder when I left you for judgment in 586 BC when Jerusalem was destroyed, if I loved you. You probably wonder that because it looked like I abandoned you there. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to gather the whole world against you. And in that moment, I'm going to defend you so you know this. I've always loved you. We look at the moment and we're like, that's violence. It's like an action movie. Great. Yeah, that's true. But it's also the demonstration of a God who truly loves his people. That's what's going on there. You want to know what Joel says about this moment? He says, yeah. It's going to be crazy this moment. In fact, all the wicked are going to go. And there is this ancient song, and not ancient. It's an older song that we used to sing. Let the weak say, I am what? Strong. You remember that song? Yeah, and we thought that that was a really neat song. Well, the original words are in the book of Joel, and the original context is summoning the wicked to fight against God. Let the weak say, I'm strong. Hey, if you're a nerd and you can't wield a sword, that's okay. Let the weak say, I am strong. Let's get everybody and fight against God so that God can take you all down, so that God can prove his people. What I took away from you in judgment, I will restore to you double. I'll give it all back to you. That's what's going on here. Here is what Paul says about it. This is the time that he's going to give his people rest. And here's what Zechariah says about this moment. It's amazing. It says this, the Lord will return and he'll come to the Mount of Olives say, why does he come to the Mount of Olives? Because the Mount of Olives is the landmark where everyone runs away. Zedekiah, he ran away on the Mount of Olives. David, when he was fleeing Absalom, guess where he ran away from? Through the Mount of Olives. Every king, when they were under pressure, where did they run through? The Mount of Olives. Now, do you understand a little bit why Jesus, where was he tempted? Where was he tested the night that he was betrayed? On the what? Mount of Olives. What's the temptation? Everyone before you went that way. They ran away. Where are you going to go? And Jesus says, I'm not running away. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And that's why he will return on the Mount of Olives. And here's what's going to happen. When Israel thinks, oh, here we go again. We're just going to be abandoned. Our king is going to run away. They see their Lord on the Mount of Olives and he's facing them. And the Mount of Olives splits in what? Half. Why? Because the symbol of defeat will be what? Defeated. 
And that will create a valley, according to Zechariah 14, a valley that connects from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And all of Israel at that moment in Jerusalem, they will run, it says, they will flee from Jerusalem to their Savior because they're repenting to him. And so in the moment when Jerusalem and Israel was to be destroyed, at the moment that Christ returns, he will come to the Mount of Olives, it will split in two. And finally, for the first time in their history, the whole nation repents and runs in love for the Savior they were always supposed to love. That's what's going to happen that day. It starts a totally new time. That's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one, and we could put it simply this way in Revelation 19, John says this, he calls Jesus the word of God. In the beginning was the word. The word is the one who began it, and the word is the one who will what? Finish it. He will complete creation. That's what's going on here, and that is what segues into the millennial kingdom. You know, in these kind of charts we have to do, we never draw anything to scale. I mean, look at that. Seven years is like only half of the millennial kingdom. I mean, it's ridiculous. So I just said, hey, this is the real perspective on the matter. I try to draw it a little bit more to scale. The red is the tribulation, and then that's the millennial kingdom. It's just a speck. It's just a speck, and it's just a reminder. The time of suffering is short, and the time of joy is long. Never forget that. Well, is this a physical kingdom? Well, Babylon was a physical kingdom. Rome was a physical kingdom, and Daniel unites them all. Daniel unites them all in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7. Yeah, it's a physical kingdom. We'll see that more. And people sometimes wonder, and, and I know we're running out of time a little bit here, but I'll just be brief. Uh, why does it take you know, a certain amount of time to set up for this kingdom? And Daniel, for example, it talks about how there will be 1,290 days, and that's when the blessing comes. And then it mentions even 1,335 days. You say, why does it add 30 more days? Why does it add 75 days total? What's going on there? Well, 30 days is a month, so you conclude one month of judgment, like God has to judge all the people who are alive and remain at this time. And he also, in the subsequent matter, has to set up things for Christ's return. They're even cleaning things up. This is a real battle, which means real people die. And Ezekiel 39 verse 12 says this, it'll take seven months to bury all the bodies. I mean, that's how massive this battle will be. So this is a real thing. And so it takes time. And then you say, okay, I get that. A month to conclude one thing, a month to prepare one thing. Why 15 days? Like, why not another month or six months or seven months? Good question. 15 days. Only two, host- uh, only two holidays that, have, that start on the 15th day. One of them is Passover. What do you think everyone's going to do on the start of the kingdom? Passover. They're going to say, thank you, Jesus, for finishing the job of deliverance finishing the job. And he will be inaugurated at that time. Zechariah 6, you should read it because it is so amazing of how the king will be crowned with the most beautiful crown. All of God's people will be gathered around him. And all this to say, all this to say is the dates and the timing of everything, it matters. Even the thousand years matter. You say, why a thousand years? Bible trivia time, Methuselah lived for 969 years under sin under sin. There was, no, there was no intermediating factor there. He lived in the same kinds of time that we are, and he lived 969 years. Zechariah 8 says this, that there will be many people at this time who live through the entire period. They'll be so old that they, they have to have a staff to sit, not just to stand, but to sit. 
It says in Isaiah 65 that if you die at age 100, you're considered a baby. You say, what? Why? Because sin has been so reversed at this time that death is no longer an issue. It's been so restrained, so curtailed, so mitigated. Why a thousand years? Because you have to prove that people are outliving who? Methuselah, who lived under sin to show that you're not living under what? Sin anymore. Because Christ, the new Adam, has come. And so there will be a fulfillment of creation. I mean, when you're living that long, clearly the created order is being restored back. And when the lion lays down with the lamb, as we talk about in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, well, you know that creation has been rejuvenated. God is being vindicated. There's the fulfillment of Israel. One thing people wonder at this time, they say, yeah, fine, they can have their land and everything. But what about that temple with all those sacrifices? Like in Ezekiel 40 through 48, Zechariah chapter 6, Isaiah 61, and Jeremiah 31. I mean, like, why all those kinds of things? Well, simple. Romans 12. What does Paul command us? Offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices. Does that contradict Christ's sacrifice for us? Does it? No, because it's talking about what? Worship. All of those sacrifices mentioned in Ezekiel 40 through 48, it's fascinating because they're all technical terms. They're like an in and out menu. It's very good. And, <clears throat> and you probably all want in and out. So the, uh, the, the, the technical ideas of all those sacrifices, none of them are for atonement. None of them. They are only for two things, worship and consecrating the whole nation to be priests, worship and consecration. And you say, why do you need to consecrate the whole nation to be priests? What did God say? What did God promise Israel? Exodus 19, you will be a kingdom of priests. Finally, they will be. They will be. God says, I'll give you everything you wanted. I'll give you everything I had for you. And Israel will live that out and they will lead the whole world in worship. The fulfillment of the church will happen as we reign with him as promised in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And even the nations will be fulfilled. This is critical. People say, oh, you just care about Israel. That's not true. I care about every single nation mentioned in the scriptures and everyone has a distinctive place. Do you guys remember the nation of Egypt? They weren't so good. That's why you have the Exodus. You have the nation of Assyria. They weren't so good. That's why you have the exile. But do you know what it says in Isaiah chapter 19? It says this, that Egypt and Assyria, they will have one highway running through the Holy Land and they will all gather in Jerusalem to worship God. And this is the best part. God says, and I will call them my inheritance and the work of my hands. What is that a testimony to? That God will take his enemy and make them his son. And he does that with the nations that killed his own people. Think about that. That can only happen if those are real nations. And God will only demonstrate it if those things actually happen that way. That's the point of their existence. There will be fulfillment of the nations, but most of all, there will be fulfillment of Christ. He will restore everything. He will be the final Adam You know, one of the best scenes of the millennial kingdom is found in Psalm 22. You have the beginning of it. My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. You know that. But you forget at the end of of Psalm 22, it says this. All the ends of the earth will gather around the Messiah to to declare his righteousness. Why does the son suffer? Because there will be a day when he stands in Jerusalem 
and from one end of the horizon to the other end of the horizon, the whole earth will be facing, every nation, tribe, and tongue will be facing simultaneously to Jerusalem where Jesus Christ is, and they will be declaring to him, you are the righteous one. Thank you for justifying the many, and they will be worshiping him. And you know what Jesus says in Isaiah 53? He says, at that moment, the, the servant will see his offspring, his seed, and his soul will be satisfied. That's what's going to happen. This is all about the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. And for this very reason, at the end of the millennium, you might say, what's going on there? After a thousand years, Satan is released. He was bound for the thousand years. Now he's released. Why? Why let the guy out? Just keep him there. It's about Christ. It's not about our convenience. It's about Christ. Think about this. Eden was one way and then it fell. Genesis 2 to Genesis 3. The millennial kingdom is like Eden, is it not? But if Eden fell, maybe the millennial kingdom can also what? Fall. That's the question. So Satan is released and he deceives the nations just like Eve was what? Deceived. And the question is, will it happen again? Will it ever happen again? Can the problem of evil truly be put away forever? What happens this time when people are deceived? Does the second Adam fall? And the answer is what? Fire comes down from heaven, consumes them all, stops everything in its track. What does this show you? The problem of evil is solved. And who solved it? The Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam. And because he solved it and God fulfilled his plan and did everything and made everything right and accounted for every single thing, every single sin, every single promise, every single purpose, now he has the right to judge. No one can come to God and say, it's not fair. You didn't do what you were supposed to do, God. You, how can you judge me? That's hypocritical. No one can say that. He's done every single thing, solved every single thing. And so there is the great white throne judgment at this point. That is the one that judges unbelievers. That is the one that sentences them to hell forever. God does it now. Why? Because he's proved he is the just and the justifier for everything. That's what happens now. And after he judges that sin, what you have is the eternal state. You have the eternal state. And you say, God makes a whole new heavens and new earth. Why? For a different purpose. That's why. You have one earth for one thing and one earth for another. You have an earth that you must redeem and show your son in redemption. And then there's another earth that you remember. You know, if you look at the, at the eternal state with the new heavens and new earth and the heavenly Jerusalem, it's like a museum. You got 12 gates and 12 foundations and each thing's a pearl and, and its dimensions are as big as the United States, but it's a cube. Why a cube? Because it's the only thing that's a cube in the scriptures is the Holy of Holies. The whole earth becomes the Holy of Holies. And, and so everything is designed to be a memorial of what God does and what God did for us. And that's what the eternal state is all about, remembering the God who had such a great plan. By way of conclusion, Look, eschatology, you might wonder, if you do it right, is it practical? Yeah. If you want to think about why you would engage, remember 
the last days. You're in this time. It matters. If you want to know and have perspective on suffering, remember the rapture. You'll never face the worst of it. If you want to know about the centrality of Christ and how worthy he is, think about Revelation 4 and 5. If you want to understand the supremacy of Christ and all that he controls and ordains, remember the first half of the tribulation. If you want to remember his resilience and that even in the worst of possible times, Christ will hold us fast, remember the second half of the tribulation. Remember, if you want to know the epic nature of the fact that he will be with his people and he will love his people so distinctly. Remember the battle of Armageddon and how he will even defeat defeat. If you want to know in this world, yes, so many things are wrong and they're not right, but will they be made right? Yeah, remember the millennial kingdom. And if you love worship and you love the gathering of the saints, remember the eternal state where we do that forever. Eschatology is practical. It drives every part of your life today. And this is the ending of the story. And the end matters, but this is the best ending, not only because of what it is, that's true, but it's because this is what will be. This is no fairy tale. This is not fiction. This is not theory. This is our ending. And it's the best of all endings for anyone who knows and loves Christ. And so we need to learn about eschatology. We need to live it out. And most of all, we need to long for it. As John concludes, what does he say? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.